Hello? Can you hear me now, folks? Oh my God, I've just been talking this whole time and nobody could hear me. Uh, is that true? Hang on a second. I'm just going to start the discussion because that is so embarrassing. I've been uh, yammering to myself uh, in my room for five five minutes now. Okay, now everybody can hear me. Is that right? So basically, I just was talking about why I wanted to, to um, write an article about Orwell. Uh, explained a lot of it in the article. I tend to read this book when I'm depressed. I see a lot of... Um, uh, obviously a lot of parallels in the development of American, of American society. Uh, it's even worse now than it's ever been. And a lot of people, there, there was a little bit of blowback after this article. Some people interpreted it as me saying that we shouldn't do anything about uh, Putin, that this was somehow an endorsement of the invasion, or that uh, this was a way of suggesting that we withdraw from uh, trying to influence the situation. No, it's not that. This is just me looking at how um, how these events affect our own society, first and foremost, kind of in a similar way to how um, uh, American culture was affected by the war on terror, you know, forgetting that's not endorsing anything that Osama bin Laden did, but we, we made decisions in the wake of 9-11 that altered the course of American history, I think, you know, in a really negative way forever, you know, embracing torture, mass surveillance, uh, secret prisons, uh, throwing out habeas corpus. And, you know, we can hear the echoes of it even, even now. Um, there was an amazing tweet uh, last night, I guess, or the night before, where Keith Olbermann, of all people, who, with whom I used to work at Current, uh, was suggesting that uh, it might be time for a military detention of Tulsi Gabbard and and um, uh, Tucker, Tucker, Tucker Carlson, and that trials uh, might be too good. That's that's for people who engage in democracy in good faith. So that might be too good for uh, those two. Those are attitudes we would never have heard before nine eleven, particularly for, from someone who. Um, you know, would consider himself, uh, you know, technically a, a liberal of some kind. But after 9-11, I think we've been, we've been living in this environment for so long where we um, have gotten used to some of the ideas that we initially, from which we initially recoiled, like torture and uh, indefinite detention, uh, picking people up without trial, censorship, uh all these things. And, um, and so in a similar vein, what happens after the invasion of Ukraine, I'm certainly not uh, endorsing what happened there at all. It's horrible. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking at what the impact is on American culture and uh, the war fever uh, it's, that's been going on in the media. Um, a friend of mine, a politician, um, described it as uh, the West full full spectrum dominance of the information space. I think it's coming into that's becoming a reality. We're seeing sort of sweeping decisions about content um, made without any consultation or discussion with the population. 
at all that would have been extraordinarily controversial once upon a time. You know, forget about the EU banning um, RT and Sputnik, which uh, obviously those channels don't sound very uh, sympathetic right now, but the decision to just willy-nilly uh, not just disallow but erase the uh, posts on, on social media of anybody who refers to those channels um, is incredible. Labeling people who used to work at those uh, at either of those channels as uh, Russian state information. Um, there have been so many developments. Uh, the use of um, den denying Apple Pay and Google Pay and uh, Visa and MasterCard to uh, Russian citizens. But it's it's not so much that uh, all these moves. It's it's the way in which we've trained the population to um, emotionally throw their entire uh, weight into all these actions, which is I think that's the real parallel to 1984. It's the the kind of ceaseless panics that we've had really ongoing since um, Donald Trump got elected. And the way that we are able now to um, really without any trouble whatsoever, just instantaneously switch from being enraged with one set of people um, to being enraged with another group of people. So even just a, uh, a few weeks ago, it, it was uh, almost like a priority of a whole set of people in the United States. The, you know, this idea that we were so furious with the unvaccinated, we we were ready to strangle them. We were ready to do to d deny uh, food stamps to them, or medical services, or um, you know, throw the book at them because uh, underneath the policy feelings that people had, there was this this sort of uh, bubbling, effervescent hatred of whoever the other is, right? And this has become a, a, a feature of the uh, American media landscape. We saw. We saw this sort of rolled out in part after 9/11, um, but now it's it's like a permanent feature of uh, of how we think about the world and and about ourselves. And to me, that's that's what Orwell was writing about. It was he, he was foreseeing a future where uh, you take the the human tendency to toward paranoia and mistrust. Um, and fear and uh, self-preservation uh, and hatred that's always been in existence. And, you know, we've, we've seen it going back to, you know, something like the Salem witch trials, this kind of behavior. But you match that with the kind of limitless instantaneous technology that he, that he was um, inventing with the telescreen and which we now have with the internet <clears throat> and you have the possibility for this this kind of limitlessly venomous surveillance state that keeps the population uh amped in a, in a in a constant state of fury and um and that's what i worry about you know so it's it's not to say that there aren't things to be angry about in ukraine it's it's this uh, the, the, the ease with which we're able to whip the population into this this new um, uh, 
direction where almost any kind of um, policy move is it, it can be enacted almost without um, question because everybody's on board with anything as long as it's an escalation. Um, that's that's what I was trying to describe is that the, they've been successful at creating this this kind of citizen. And it's funny, uh, John Podhoretz, the the uh, neoconservative writer, just wrote a, a column in Commentary where uh, he uh, somewhat amazingly uh, says that the, the neocons have achieved their final victory and um, they now are in a world where their primary enemies are no longer liberal hipsters uh, because those people have been conquered, uh, but uh, traditional American conservatives. Uh, and that's that's kind of amazing. And, and that's what I was writing about in the article is this idea that you, you take, um, you know, the, the traditional liberals who 20 years ago were um, deeply anti-war in their orientation, they were deeply suspicious of the... You know the spy state of uh, surveillance, of torture, of violations of civil liberties, and we've turned them completely uh, around. And now they are fully on board with the things, the exact things that um, they uh, were once most opposed to. Uh, yeah, let me just read this quote before I t start taking questions. This this is from Podoritz. Uh The the key foes the neoconservatives face when it comes to the moral frame of deter deterrence are no longer hip liberals, but rather traditional conservatives who have taken their place as the leading anti-American voices of our time. So uh, good for John Podoritz for being uh, so confident that he's the person who gets to decide who's, who's American and who isn't. But it's fascinating that he's coming out in the open and saying that they've essentially conquered uh, liberals, and they can move on now to, to, to taking on conservatives who are the bigger problem. Um, so, and that kind of you know, switch, that, that, that conquest of intellectually of a whole group of people who are now uh, turned around to, and supporting the same people they used to oppose, that's something that, the, that Orwell was describing, and that's what I was trying to get at in the piece. So, uh, anyway, um, we'd love to talk about it, so uh, let's let's open it up and see who's uh, see who's in line. Uh, got a lot of people here today. This is really cool. Thanks so much, everybody, for turning out. Um, all right, who's there? It's Good Kusha. afternoon. It's Kusha. Hey, Kusha, how's it going? It's going very well. Thank you so much for this topic. I love yeah. that you chose to talk about George Orwell. I remember when I read it, 1984, in the tenth grade in English to Honors, I was really captivated by his literary abilities and um, mm -hmm. to tell the truth through his amazing language arts. And um, I really love to comment on what you've raised. I watched um, some of your appearance on Breaking Points this morning in Press mm -hmm. And I, I like that you mentioned and you were transparent saying like when you turn depressed or when you have those moments, you like to see how Orwell um, uh, demonstrated um, the world we live in or the world he saw it and the way it could worsen. And it's true. I think some of the things I think about are the fact that we had a department of war, which it still is, but the Orwellian euphemism was kicked in. I mean, the, it used to be the department of war from 1789 when the U.S. government and the current constitution 
took effect March 4, 1789, until 1947. And now it's called the Department of Defense, just like in 1984, that there was the Ministry of Love, which carried out the tortures, the Ministry of Peace, which carried out the wars, the Ministry of Truth, which carried out the false and fabricated uh, propaganda. And I think that's that's essential to understanding um, Orwell. And I think, furthermore, Orwell is a complicated figure, just like many throughout our history of, of, of the human human beings. And um, I think furthermore is the fact that Orwell was one who never pulled his punches when it came to critiquing Stalinism and uh, hijacking of what progressive left-wing values can be and should be. And he published Animal Farm in 1945 when Stalin was one of the most popular people in the world, defeating the Nazis. I mean, they gave up like 20 to 26 million casualties the Soviet Union gave. And the fact of the matter was that Roosevelt was putting pro-Stalin propaganda like there was the 1943 movie Mission to Moscow. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. but No, I haven't seen that one. It shows him, I haven't seen it completely, but I've seen like a clip or two, and it shows Stalin in a positive light. I think I've seen Professor Richard Wolff talk about how his Uncle Joe is how the U.S. was trying to portray him as. And Orwell said, no, look, when he's at his peak, I'm still going to swing, whether he's at his peak or he's at his low point, I'll still swing at him because... I mean, what came out about Stalin afterwards when Khrushchev took power, Khrushchev took power and he gave him the speech. And we learned afterwards about how many Ingush he killed, how many Chechens he killed, how many Crimean Tatars he killed, how many Poles he killed, the Mingrillian affair. I mean, uh, how many Belarusians he killed. And uh, the killings of Ingush and Chechens can very much be classified as genocidal. I think the Poles as well, too. And so I think that's important what Orwell did. And at the same time, someone who's being very thorough will say, which I would do, is that, well, Orwell was a part of the British imperialist presence in Myanmar, or formerly known as Burma. He was, I think, a police officer there. And he did give up names, if I'm not mistaken, to the British government. I'm not sure. Is that something you also are familiar with? I don't know. I don't know about that. But um, that doesn't sound unreasonable. I think he probably gave up Stalinist-type left-figure names to the British government, it might have been, if I'm not mistaken. I think Ben Norton has like a critique of George Orwell that he published once before talking about that. But I think it's important to see the holistic George Orwell. And yes, the CIA did largely propagate um, his works, um, promoting his books. I think even financing like some of the Animal Farm movie, if I'm not mistaken, the cartoon version. I'm not familiar if you watched that one or not. No, but it doesn't. It, it, there's nothing surprising about that, though, because they, they always pitched. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Um but, I mean, 1984 was always taught to us and Animal Farm. Animal Farm, obviously, is, is almost like a one-to-one allegory about the Soviet Union. So it's impossible to say that it's not a commentary on Stalinism. But, but 1984 was, was very much about the West. And we, I think a lot of us were kind of led to believe when, when we were taught that book in school that it was... Um, you know, that it was about uh, Soviet totalitarianism, a comment on that primarily. It's whether the movies on about 1984 are always sort of made up with Soviet-style uh, decor in the background. But I, I always saw it as, as being, that book as being about human beings generally. And I, and I agree with you in your assessment about his literary capabilities. I think that's what's so great about the book is that... Um, you know, 
uh, maybe the first time I read the book, I wasn't as impressed with the writing. Uh, but uh, as I've gotten older, I've, I've come to appreciate that book as uh, a novel much more. I don't know. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But, but... Thank you. Yeah, I think what Orwell said it specifically, you can look it up. He says that there's a quote. It's essentially, if I'm not mistaken, it's every serious work I've done since 1936, if I'm not misremembering the quote, has been against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism, as I understand. That's Orwell's quote. I, I paraphrase it slightly, but I think that's the core of the quote. And I think this very much paints to why a lot of it was a condemnation of Stalinism. And at the same time, as you'll know, obviously Nazism and any other uh, totalitarian society, authoritarian society, repressive society that censors uh, speech and expression and assembly and, and press and so on and so forth. And one thing I'd love to conclude on is knowing your analysis on this based off what you said on breaking points is when you're talking about Putin's rise and how he climbed up when he was helping out, I think it was one of his former professors, right? Subcheck, who. Subcheck, mayor, yeah. He, mayor of Moscow, was it? Is that uh, no, Petersburg. Petersburg, thank you. Yeah, Mayor mm -hmm. of Petersburg. And Putin was showing that he was very loyal, and Yeltsin saw that and was enamored by it. He said, This is someone who can help me out because he helped Subcheck escape, get the planes together. And I think this is what I told Ben Burgess about this general framework. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, and I could go back and hear the crowd of listeners. Is that I think there are four ways the U.S. views autocrats, despots, tyrants, and mur mass murderers of other governments. One is like steadfast, loyal allies. And that would be like <laughs> King Salman bin Abdulaziz of Saudi Arabia, El Sisi of Egypt, Pinochet of Chile, Suharto of Indonesia, Mohammed Reza Shah of Iran. That's one. Two is like those who have always pretty much been enemies or just like one step away from that, like the Assad family in Syria, Chavez in Maduro in Venezuela, or Gaddafi in Libya. Three is like those who are intended allies or actual allies that went rogue, like Noriega in Panama, Hussein in Iraq, Trujillo in Dominican Republic, the Islamic Republic, Grand Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. And I think Ben Burgess was the one who said Putin definitely fits that characterization of this third category. Totally. Later, I thought the fourth category I would add is those who are like enemies who, to one degree or another, kind of came in and became allies. And I thought of Anwar Sadat after the Camp David report. I'd love to hear your analysis on that. And I'm going to go online and listen. And oh, great. The time. No, thanks, Kush. I appreciate that. No, that's uh, those categories are really interesting. And, and um, yeah, he definitely falls into that third category. And I wrote a piece about this called Putin the Apostate. Um, because I, I lived there in Russia during the time when he came to power. Uh, and yeah, so he, Putin originally worked, he was the deputy mayor of um, St. Petersburg. Uh, he was originally just an advisor to Anatoly Sobchak, who was uh, a, a much beloved democratic figure at one point. Um but in the West, he was thought of as this almost like a Vaclav Havel type. Uh, he was the he's credited with authoring the first constitution of the Russian Feder uh, Federation. He was intellectual. He was a former Leningrad State University professor. Um, I did not go to that school. I went to the uh, another school across town uh, in, in Leningrad. But he uh, ascended from being a professor to being mayor of St. Petersburg, became kind of like a Russian version of Richard Daly. I, I, it's very difficult to describe, but he, he uh, ruled that city in, in a way that was, you know, in, this, in the style of most of the Russian leaders of the time. 
um, very tight-fisted, got in some trouble with privatizing apartments um, to his uh, friends and uh, relatives, and there were going to be criminal charges filed against him. And Putin helped secure his exit out of the country uh, through Finland and then finally uh, to Paris, uh, to a, and he evaded prosecution that way. And um, Boris Yeltsin, in one of his memoirs, uh, which I think was called Midnight Diaries, and for those of you who don't know, it, it, Boris Yeltsin didn't really write his own books. I, almost everybody in Russia that I know believes that uh, his aide, Valentin Yumashev, actually um, wrote most of those books. But uh, in, in the book, he talks about how uh, Putin's uh, act in, in taking Subchak, uh, getting Subchak to, to Paris was one of the things that impressed him most about um about his service and Putin immediately came to, to Moscow and played that role for Yeltsin, smoothing his exit out of power. Yeltsin was being pursued at the time by political enemies, uh, including the prosecutor general of the country, Yuri Skaratov, uh, who was going after the Yeltsin family for a variety of things, but uh, among other things, accepting uh, bribes from a, a Swiss construction company called Mavitex. Uh They were making, uh, among other things, they, they were giving each of the family members no-limit charge cards that included um, Yeltsin's daughter. And uh, so Putin essentially destroyed Skorotov, played a sex tape of him on national TV after being promoted to the head of the IFSB, and really secured... Uh, Yeltsin's exit um, from power uh, in in 99 and 2000 when he himself ascended to the presidency uh, and started a, a, the, the second war with Chechnya and as I wrote about in the in the piece at the time there were there was all this laudatory commentary about Putin and this was after he'd done some pretty horrific things. You know, he had gone after uh, journalists. He had um, had independent uh, media stations closed down or essentially prevented from um, broadcasting independently. And in any case, uh, there were there were attacks against uh, reporters from outlets like Novaya Gazeta. Uh, some people who I knew personally, like the um, you know, the writer Anna Politkovska, knew a little bit. There was uh, another reporter named Yuri Shekachikin, who I used to call for advice every now and then. Eventually, became a Duma deputy. He was he was killed later on. Um, but but even before that, uh, Putin was doing all kinds of things that were not good, uh, and but was being praised by a lot of the foreign policy establishment because it was believed that he was going to be a more sober, uh, more dependable version of, of Yeltsin. And um, it wasn't until later that he became, you know, kind of a member of the Hitler of the Month Club that you described, like the Saddam Hussein Noriega type figure. Um, so that's, fa I, I mean, I think that's, that all that history is, fascinating and it's it's also just amazing that it's been wiped away so effectively we, we we 
we just don't know anything about it. Um, these figures, these e these people who are described in these maximally evil tones, uh, like Hussein and Putin, um, uh, they're they're dropped to us in the media as if they were born that way out of the womb. They 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 were always uh, Hitlers uh, in this sort of contextless way and you know that too is kind of amazing that the, the the inability to look back but this has become a feature of of the you know, kind of american uh news landscape is just this ability to um you know not think a couple of levels down or or not not to have a multi-layered um view on things there can only be you know a sort of binary understanding of everything and that's very much um how orwell was describing the um, life in fact if you look if you look at the the uh sort of afterward to the book the the principles of newspeak and the appendix you know, he talks about how the whole concept of of um of newspeak was to build a language where people couldn't have thoughts that that meant two things at once you you, you couldn't have um uh you know sort of an idea with with shades to it because everything was concrete every every word only meant one thing um you either believed in something or you hated it there were there were no shades to anything which is why it's been fascinating watching the story unfold because the propaganda has been really all all about the potentially complicating details of all this. Yeah, you know, I'm not one of those people who thinks that um, NATO expansion caused this, but it's a factor uh, in in bringing about this news story. But we're not allowed to even entertain the idea that there can be you know many causes of a historical event so anyway oh that's really interesting so we'll move on and let's see who else is, uh, is in the queue um let's see who do we have uh i think mary is that you are you there uh no mary I think Alan is then next. No? Yeah. Hey, Matt. Hey, hey Alan. How's it going? Good. Thanks. Um, you know, one one thing that's that struck me as particularly, I guess, Orwellian <laughs> uh, recently is when it was announced maybe a week or so ago that certain some countries were banning public support for Putin's invasion. Oh, yeah, um, Czech, Czech, the Czech Republic, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right, the Czech Republic. Um, I remember seeing an interesting, an interesting mix of uh, reactions to that on Twitter. You know, some people were disturbed by it, such as myself, and then others were cheering for it. And one, per one comment in particular stuck out to me, um, in which someone said, uh, I hope that all free countries follow suit. This is... You know, <laughs> Right. I mean, the the double speak, double think there, 
calling for three That's countries so to ban free speech. Yeah, exactly. And, and it makes you wonder, you know, how did we get to this point? I mean, this isn't the first, you know, instance of censorship that we've been seeing, you know, with some 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 level of mass support lately. I mean, obviously the Joe Rogan thing. We, and you talked about censorship yourself recently, Matt. Um, mm-hmm. And I have to wonder, you know, how are we getting there? Um, so one thing that I've done a few times in, in recent months is reply to somebody calling for basically, you know, any sort of censorship or deplatforming and ask them when they decided that they were in favor of censorship. I've never actually gotten a response other than being ignored or blocked. Um, and I think that's telling. I think that there's a process by which people are coming to these positions that is not um, not really happening in their conscious. Conscious, yeah. 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 Um, that, I don't know a better. Ex- oh, sorry, Matt. Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts. I just want to say uh, I, I don't have a great explanation for that. The thing that makes maybe the most sense that I've heard so far is the phenomenon that people are calling mass formation psychosis, which is you know basically um, to boil it down to oversimplify it, it is that uh, unceasing stream of, of crises that you re- uh, referred to earlier, and then you give someone you give them like a solution to it, and so. For COVID, it was like the one solution is the vaccine, and for for basically wrong opinions and wrong act, wrong actions, the one solution is canceling slash deplatforming slash censoring. But it's right. okay because it's the private sector. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. That's no. First, first of all, that that's a that that's such a perfect detail, right? That I, I hope more free countries follow suit. Um, I mean that Orwell could have written that, right? I mean that's that's a that's an amazing thing, um, but yeah, I think I have I have done the same thing and asked people when they've changed their minds about censorship because uh, you know as a Gen Xer, you know there I didn't know anybody growing up who was pro censorship like that that was not the kind of person that I I would ever have interacted with that would have been extremely unusual and if if such a person person existed i would not have thought um that it would have been someone to the left of me usually it would it would have been it would have been somebody you know maybe who was um uh, you know in favor of banning the dixie chicks or whatever it was like that was the only experience we had with that but i will say like uh i think there were a couple of things that changed the minds of some intellectuals in, in recent years. Uh, Charlottesville was one of them um, where this idea of allowing people, uh, neo-Nazis to march, you know, the, the, that was the, the sort of fundamental um, allegory about free speech in America was the Skokie, Illinois instance where, you know the ACLU was in, was uh, defending the right of neo Nazis to march in in Illinois, and the the legend for liberals after that was always that 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 had turned a it had turned out well, but b it it was the right thing to do. Now the the problem um, with the way I think a lot of people understood that story was they were looking at whether or not that decision was effective as opposed to the the deeply thought out reasons behind it. If you ever see the movie Mighty Ira, you, you know he talked about uh, Ira Glasser from the uh, the ACLU talked about why why they were um, 
defending the Nazis' rights to march. And the reason for that was because if you didn't, then every small town in the country was going to take it upon themselves to make decisions about who could and could not speak. And did you want that um, going on in small towns in the South where they might, um, you know, ban a civil rights march or, so, or something along those lines? Uh, but for a lot of people, the, it was the idea that, well, the march in Skokie went, went off without a hitch and th those Nazis ended up becoming um, a non-factor and, uh, and therefore it was the right thing to do. Well, when Charlottesville ended the way it did, I think a lot of people's minds were changed. I think that's when you started to see editorials in the New York Times about rethinking free speech. And then the second thing after that um, was the deplatforming of um, Alex Jones and then also people like Milo Yiannopoulos. And you started to see comments from people in universities to the effect of, uh, well, you know, deplatforming works. We don't, we don't have to deal with those people as uh, public figures anymore. And there's no such thing as a slippery slope. And that's a logical fallacy. So um, we can actually go after uh, those people. And in fact, if we don't go after them, uh, their continued, uh, you know, propagandizing is really our fault. So we must go after them. We must censor them. That's the closest thing I've seen to a logical explanation for the change of heart about censorship. But to me, you know, I think that represents a, a deep misunderstanding of of why <laughs> why you want to avoid those those processes. I mean, it's it's human nature, and this is what this is part of what Orwell was talking about: is that you know, if you think you can stop with one uh, Alex Jones, it just doesn't work like that. The 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 nature of human beings is that we always go. Um, and find the next person and the next person and the next person until um, there's a crackdown in all directions. So I think, I think anyway, that's Alan, right. Thanks so much. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I'm glad you brought up this, the fallacy of the fallacy of uh, the slippery slope. I mean, I think that if there's one thing we've learned, it's that it's not a fallacy and, and, you know, there's another word for it, which is the ratchet, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. always seeding ground only for it to click tighter. Um, right. And I think I think something that dovetails so tightly with the slippery slope is the loss of principles, because that, that's the difference. It's do you have the principle of free speech or not? If you have the principle of free speech, that's kind of a way of maintaining um, the boundary. But, you know, before you slip down the slope, once you say, oh, the slippery slope doesn't exist well now now you've divorced yourself from the principle and now you've embraced well we'll make the decision every time however we feel that time and i think i think the loss of principles is one thing that's hugely um empowering or, or not empowering powering um um no i know what you're saying i mean i think i yeah. think i think that and this is the, again this is another thing that happened after 9 11 where it's just it's deeply corrupting to the whole society when we get out of the habit of opposing torture or indefinite detention or mass surveillance we start saying well it's okay 
but only in this limited case. And the next thing you know, you're saying it's okay in all these cases. And then, and then finally, you know, before long, you've got an international archipelago of secret prisons all, all over the place and people are being whisked away. And, and then you start with assassinating foreign citizens. You say that's legal. Then you move over to doing it to uh, American citizens and you say that's legal. And, you know, there it's, I, as you say, when when you when you depart from the principle, you're not really grounded in in an idea anymore. You're you're just making, um, you know, calculated decisions on a case by case basis on, in Machiavellian fashion, which is where I think the discourse is gone. That like this whole idea of principle is like really disappeared, um, which is is terrifying. You know, I mean, and and I I get. I get the idea that that uh, Putin is, is is showing something um, th that's horrible, uh, you know, on, on a on a different level. But this is corrupting also our response to it. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And I I'll just say I'm an atheist, but I think the loss of of religion might might also be tied into this, where religion provided kind of these a set of principles that that people would hold on to and that was i think a safeguard against this loss of principles now that now that there's kind of a new religion of just like whatever you call it successor ideology wokeism whatever um unfortunately that movement doesn't really have principles it, it, what it holds highest is not you know some commandments or a golden rule but but just group membership and agreeing with everyone else because they're the good people i think that's I think that's extremely dangerous. And thank you so much for having me on, Steve. No, th thanks a lot, Alan. I appreciate it. Those are all really great questions. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I'm, I'm an atheist too. I, I grew up reading all those, you know, that gigantic Chris Hitchens uh, book on atheism. And um, but you're right. I think the 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 lack of a spiritual basis uh, contributes to all of this because there's there's no, there's no debate about the sort of rightness and wrongness of things on the spiritual level. Um, you know, it's just about whether or not we're achieving the correct result or not. And I, I don't know. It's just, it's deeply troubling to me. Um, and it's been weird. It's just been really weird watching people who I, I grew up with, uh, who I always thought believed and thought exactly the same way I did, um, just suddenly completely changed their minds about things. It's that, uh, I don't know if anybody else out there has had that same experience, but, but it's been really, uh, really, really weird. Anyway, I'll move on. Uh, thanks a lot, Alan. And, um, let's see who's up, who's up next. Uh, I think it's Kyle. Hey, Matt, can you hear me? Hey, Kyle, how's it going? Doing well. Hey, I don't want to, uh, kind of, Bogart this conversation or, or to sidetrack it, but I just wanted to uh, throw out um, with regard to your book that you're writing on profiteers, if you've uh, checked into GS Laboratories um, and their their case out in Washington State uh, would be something pretty interesting for you to look at, I think. No, um, what's that? <clears throat> uh, they're a lab that was doing COVID testing and they're being uh, sued by um, insurance companies uh, regarding uh, kind of price gouging and uh, over testing and stuff like that. It's uh, um, right now, it's very I, initial stages of litigation, but it's, uh, it's the complaint is worth reading. I would say. 
Absolutely. No, that's that's great. And there, so there's there's um, there's already a case then. So I, I can find the lawyers on that. Yeah, definitely. Yep. All right. That's awesome. Thanks so much, but, Kyle. I appreciate it. Uh, the, yeah. the question I had regarding your article was um, mm-hmm. you mentioned kind of in the same paragraph, uh, you know, different media companies being deplatformed or uh, shut down, censored. Uh, but you also mentioned demonetization. I was wondering what your you know take on the the difference between those two approaches are. It's something I go back and forth on. Like, obviously, setting aside the you know the constitutional difference between private companies and governments, um, you're not guaranteed the right to profit from your speech. Um, and uh, so, so I'm, I'm more inclined to you know see that as a valid form of uh, um, monitoring the the kind of speech that's put out there. But at the same time, we've seen with you know, maybe the trucker protests and Justin Trudeau, just how much of a stranglehold um, money can, and capital can can be on, on actors. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Kyle. Um, uh, so there's, for me, there's a couple of levels to that, to, to that uh, problem. Um, the first is like, you know, uh, does the tech platform have any kind of relationship at all to the government um, when they're making those decisions. So, uh, I mean, I was shocked last year. I did this story uh, kind of, you know, about Brett Weinstein's conflict with YouTube, you know, because I was doing this whole Meet the Censored um, series of columns. And I contacted uh, uh, YouTube and they they just told me outright and, and I was really shocked by this that they that they came up with um the their decision making about whom to uh deal strikes to was done in consultation with um the fda and the cdc uh and you know that to me was was pretty striking so if if they're if if somebody's being demonetized or it's being penalized in some financial way uh for speech and it's done in conjunction with uh, or consultation with the government. That makes me really nervous. I think I think there's there's probably a First Amendment issue there. Uh, and yeah, these, these are private companies that they, they, they. I get the the argument that they shouldn't be forced um, to be an outlet for hate speech or uh, you know propaganda for or mis- misinformation or organized foreign misinformation to, to the degree that, you know, that there is a lot of that. Um, but the, the, the Canada uh, story, I, I thought, uh, opened a whole new can of worms on that front uh, because, you know, w- what happens with these small, um, especially with these uh, YouTube channels that depend for their livelihood on... Um, you know, on, on the revenue they get from from their broadcasts, they're essentially building small businesses. They've invested a lot of their own money um, in Facebook or YouTube. Uh, some of the first stories I did about this, I did a story that was for, for Rolling Stone called "Who um, Who Will Fix Facebook," and it was about you know this. Uh, a lot of these are small outlets like um, uh, you know Cop Block was one uh, there was a uh, another one but involving a guy named James Reader uh and you know these are people who had invested 
you know, $100,000, $150,000 in advertising for Facebook over the years to build up these sites that made, that were like small family businesses and they were just disappeared in a heartbeat. They were, they were removed by uh, Facebook for being what they called coordinated and in, authentic activity. Um, and you're right. People don't have the right to profit. They don't have a, you know, a, a constitutionally guaranteed right to make money. But what I worry about with that and with any kind of uh, financial confiscation is, you know, it's one thing to be kicked off Twitter. It's another thing to lose, to lo- actually lose money or, or lose your ability to use banking services or, um, or lose your business. And the biggest chill there is, is going to be on, you know, people are going to, they're just going to stay even farther back from where the line is, uh, you know, if before the, all you are risking is, um, you know, being on Twitter or being on Facebook, uh, you're going to worry a lot more if you think that you might be denied banking services or Google Pay or Apple Pay or that your PayPal account might disappear or that you might not be able to use um, a payment processor. Uh, you know, all these things are, they're just a, a level up um, on the speech chilling front. So yeah, I, I go back and forth about that, but I, I, uh, I do think that, that, um, you know, collectively it's, it's, it's just another form of control and it's another, another thing to worry about. Uh, and I wouldn't be as worried about it if, if the distribution, uh, situation was not so con- concentrated, like if, if it weren't true that it, like a handful of companies, uh, had such control over the, the speech landscape, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'd say I probably agree with you on that point. So thanks for your time. All right. Thanks a lot, Kyle. Appreciate it. Uh, and thanks for the question. Uh, all right. I will, let's move to the, uh, next person who's, uh, Sealy. Sealy. Hi. <laughs> do you hear me? Yeah, I do. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Hi. Hi. Okay. I my connection is not that good. I'll see if I can speak and you hear me. Uh, I have some questions more than anything. It's not I thought growing up that we were going to be going for brand new world or something more light, but apparently <laughs> we are getting into nineteen eighty four right ahead. Uh, uh I thought when I read your piece, well, the first part of this, uh, about uh, Klaus Schwab uh, from the World Economic Forum, mm-hmm. uh, I was listening to the speech he gave because well, now they are repeating all over, and he was mentioning about uh, this program, the Young New Leaders. Right. That, yeah, Trudeau was there, and I don't know how many others. And he mentioned he got every time he was increasingly having more people that were in that program in the government or inside the ministries or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, Argentina took part in, he mentioned Argentina, but it was in, uh, in, 20, in 2017. And in uh, that time, we had the first ever uh, right government. Because we, our right government was always like your Democrats on the center, and mm-hmm. well, now it's different. 
it's a different government. It's not better, but different. And uh, I look it up, and the current minister of economics, and who is a disciple of Stiglitz, nonetheless, was part of that same program in a country as far away in the end of the world as this one he has there are in every single party it's like they're from the government in and he and he's they are promoting this id the electronic id with i don't know if you heard about it it's it's 1984 mm -hmm. The electronic ID part I did not hear about, but I'll look that oh, up well, for it's sure. An electronic ID with the thing that they're doing on China. Well, he talked about he already agreeing with Canada and France and Germany. And they were going to get together in 2020 for that, but well, then the pandemic came. And... Oh. Sorry, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Sorry, I, I, my uh, my headphones uh, broke there. Um, no, I will I will look that up. So there's there's an electronic uh, uh, ID that they're 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 going. So this this is all about this sort of new World Econo Economic Forum and the, the fact that they've got leaders everywhere, including uh, my old my old friend Christian Freeland in Canada, and uh, the Young Leaders Program. They're in they're in almost every country in the world, and they all have essentially identical ideas about economics. But uh, they're not supposed to because the other ones, the ones that he named, they were from the school of Chicago, and mm -hmm. he's this one is from Stiglitz. I mean, they're they're in, they're supposed to have the same ideas. They are. They obviously have the same ideas, but they don't say they have the same ideas. You know what I mean? Right, right. They some say that oh, I'm from the left, and of course they're not. But it's it's very catchy. Right. Um, and then I have I wanted to ask you then if you don't haven't heard about that. Um do you think that this current war with Russia and the sanctions could lead to the dollar not being the the I don't know how to say the it. reserve cut currency? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I I doubt it. Um that's not an area of expertise of mine, but uh you know, it would it would depend on how seriously the uh, the oil markets were disrupted, but uh, you know it would it would take something pretty drastic. It would take uh, you know uh, China and, and and Russia. I I, I can't even under, uh, foresee the circumstances <laughs> under with that under under which that would happen. I don't think so. Um, but I, you know, as to the the WEF, um, I do think you know that there's there's a there's an aspect to that too that's that's kind of straight out of or Orwell. And it's this idea that, the, you know, the leaders of the, of um, countries, you know, they all have to come from the same class. Uh, you know, it's just roughly speaking, there's only a certain kind of person that ends up in Davos or at the WEF. Uh, and it's that giant pool of everybody else, you know, the proles, um, are this kind of second level of uh, humanity that doesn't get to participate in the political, um, uh, you know, governance of any of these countries. I don't know if that. If, if, uh, I, it's I like a monarchy. By yeah, it's world. it's an yeah, it's an uh, it's an aristocracy or monarchy. Yeah, it's 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 not 
obviously not hereditary, but there's there is a, there's an implication, a strong implication in the book that there that there's you know the the upper classes, um, you know, understand kind of naturally that they're that oh, they and exist yeah, to sure. rule. Yeah. So. So uh, yeah, no, I think the W the WEF the Davos thing. I think that in the, Davos there's a monarchy. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, but there are the sons and there are rich families all over. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, that that's disturbing, and I and I and I think a lot of those people share, you know, a, a kind of creepy um, dislike or distaste for civil liberties uh, that that kind of comes out during times like this. So and, and and definitely came out during the pandemic, uh, you know this this uh, distaste for the idea that that you know the people of lesser education that their point of view should be even taken into consideration uh, that was so on display during the pandemic and um, what here here it was different but I yeah. oh really was it yes. Yes, here, I mean, and that's why they can come in with, and here, this have, we have a little problem with authority. And mm-hmm. here people, like, they say yes to everything because any law, any norm they put goes in unconsciously, I guess, inside the people's head. And they say, this is logic, is, do you think? This? And they think if it's, if it's of any purpose, if it's stupid, they they look at what are the consequences if they are going to get caught or not, and they do it or not. After that, and they think I think they think that there's no consequence, and they will always be able to do that because it's you know Argentina. And if they try to, they try to. When people decided there was there was a very strict lockdown, but when people decided the lockdown stopped, it stopped. There was right. nothing they can do because they had to shoot everybody. Right. And so they feel like they're immune to it, like, oh, they want to be able to do something like this because here, I mean, everybody, what, what algorithm can they put? They want to break the algorithm. But people don't pay attention to that. And we have uh, 7% uh, inflation per month and the monetary fund that Trump led us. And so it's it's not like that. So they, people are too, people are are talking about cancel culture, and we have no, absolutely no, um, shall you call it, politically correct here, it doesn't exist. Well, that's interesting. I'll have to come visit sometime. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not that, that cute, I tell you. Well, thank you, Celia. I appreciate your uh, the, the question. Um, the only I- thing I comment is look up the, the Spadni vaccine. Okay. Uh, about Russia? Yeah. Look what happened with the World Health Organization. I will do that. I will do that. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Take care now. Um, okay. I'm going to do take a, just a couple more. I've got a, um, I'm on daddy duty today, so i got to pick up my children later. But uh, thank you so much. And let's uh, see, who, see who else is here. I've got S, whose avatar is interesting. What is that? Is that a... Is that an orangutan? What away. S is no longer there, it doesn't seem. Can you unmute yourself? Okay, no? So let's go to Curl. Curl, Curl Malone. Uh, 
Utah Jazz fan, clearly. Are you there? Going once, going twice. No. Okay, let's go to Susan. Susan, are you there? No? All right, let's try Arash. Gotta unmute yourself. Wow, is everybody gone? All right, um, let's try Greg. The rest with you, man. All right. Wow. All right. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. Um, just taking my lunch. About to walk back to work. But uh, I thought Ooh. I. I. Can you hear me? Yep. Absolutely. Okay. I remember somebody saying earlier, kind of how to digest the specific moment we're in, and there's no history doesn't really repeat itself. It rhymes, but I think a useful place to start looking is uh, the Wilson era, mm-hmm. and you know how he. I mean, how he re- kind of recreated the banking system. He created the Federal Reserve System. He, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, it's apple to oranges, but he, he started segregating the federal government, which I wouldn't say is exactly the same, but I feel like some of the Democrats' policies could be interpreted as being, uh, uh, you, you, you know, you know how it goes, where it's like, we got to be racist to be anti-racist in a way. And... Also, just looking at um, potentially his views on just uh, putting democracy around the world for the sake of doing that and imposing liberal democracy in places where it likely isn't going to work. And um, I think that's an interesting place to start and look around. I was also wondering if you'd heard of Peter Zion before and his kind of um, theory on where we're headed. No, Peter Zion, I have not. Uh, he, I think he worked for Stratcom, which is, I believe was founded by, I can't remember his first name, but Friedman. Um, and his kind of view of the world is that, I think he had a book called Accidental Super, Superpower, and he framed it as the global economic system that the United States imposed upon the free world at the Bretton Woods after World War II is starting to wind down and drawdown based on demography and um, we're going to enter a world that's much more insulated and go back to like I see the trade sanctions we're levying against Russia, which are insane because we didn't even levy the same kind of sanctions against Nazi Germany. And Mm -hmm. I see that and it seems like it's kind of the collapse of like what could be, I mean, it could be the collapse of, you know, the trade system where we can t- we start to have these trade wars like we did back in the and uh, back in the 1700s during colonialism and the expansion of Europe. And it is a little bit worrying in that in that sense, because I mean, it's just that just means more warfare and more potential death. And yeah, I, I think they know what they're doing, because if you listen to people like even like Kissinger, Brzezinski, um, of the other guy who did containment, you know, they all said basically that Ukraine is completely necessary 
to Russia as like a as a entity for it to be a full empire. So Russia will never let Ukraine go, which is why we are we're in the situation we are now. And you'd think that people like Newland and you know the neocons around them would they obviously know that of this theory, but they are just completely ignoring it and throwing it off to the wayside, which makes me think that they don't <laughs> they really don't care about us normal people because you know they have their bunkers they have wherever they can hide so they're they're really willing to gamble with our lives and especially ukrainian people's lives right now to institute whatever goal they have in mind which i mean like i said the federal reserve system happened under wilson and i see similar things like you know, like the last caller was saying you know we're they might implement something like a uh, social credit score in this country. And it's, I mean, I just don't see it going any other way, which I know is a dark view, but that I, I just, I don't know how to fight back against that exactly. And just feels, <laughs> I feel very lost because I felt, feel like I'm going through what I did in 2016 where I, I didn't vote for Trump or Clinton and I didn't like Trump, but I felt like me and you helped with this, Matt, and in and, and your show, you know, me pointing out that Trump wasn't as bad as people said he was, and you could maybe give him credit for some of his perspectives on things. I felt like I was completely demonized. And now it's the same thing again, where I, <laughs> I, I sympathize with Putin's position to a degree. Not, I mean, I think war is terrible, but I understand why he did what he did to uh, a degree and it's just i mean it's just history repeating itself again <laughs> right so. right yeah well no uh greg thanks for the question yeah i mean first of all i mean i, I um as regards the wilson era yeah i don't know i mean they, they they certainly that was the beginning of kind of organized political surveillance you know the, the, we went go back to the palmer raids the origins of the fbi back then i mean you can the alien sedition act <laughs> yeah well that was before that but yeah but but sure yeah there there's there there are some parallels um but uh but you know more to the the point you know on on that on the idea about expanding nato and and how there was such wide agreement from everybody from kissinger to stephen cohen to to um to obama to uh, to Bill Burns, the current head of the CIA, that you know, NATO expansion to Georgia and Ukraine was a you know the brightest of bright lines that they would never tolerate that. Now, I I don't agree. Like I I don't feel like the Monroe Doctrine necessarily is a uh, is a, is a, a justified moral position, um, but the, the Russians certainly see things that way and the my issue with the victoria newlands of the world is is has a lot to do with the fact that when i lived in russia i knew a lot of people like this who a lot of them had gone to really good schools they were you know very well either wealthy or had grown up um you know in a kind of uh, I don't in know. Moscow? <laughs> no, no, no. no I'm, I'm talking about the expat community. These, these were, these were people who came over to Russia. They, for the most part, they, they lived among other Americans. They didn't, they didn't learn the language. They had grown up, um, you know, in pretty privileged backgrounds. Gone to really good schools or Ivy League schools. 
and they uh, they came there with the like kind of exciting mission of redrawing uh, society and you know and, and remaking the Soviet Empire, which um, you have to have a certain kind of intellectual arrogance to even think about that project, which is what was going on with all, a lot of the Americans in that community. Now, what started to happen over time, and which, which made me really, really nervous even back then, was there was a certain kind of personality that, that felt like it was incumbent upon the United States to not only, um, you know, remain uh, on very close terms with the people who are running the Russian government, but to essentially control um, control that government and control their economic policy, uh, you know, and, and this was going on throughout uh, the the Yeltsin years for sure, um, and they were also doing this in Ukraine, and and I think what happened in two thousand and fourteen sort of reflected this idea that that a lot of Americans held that. We, we just can't countenance um, a government in that region that, that we don't have um, control over, that we're not able to just walk into the, to the president's office and tell them exactly what, what's what at, at any time. And then, you know, that's, that's the most scandalous part of those tapes that you hear that we heard released that, yes, that were probably released by Russian intelligence but when you when you hear these tapes of Joe Biden talking to Petro Poroshenko and him just basically telling him, well, here's what your policy on this is going to be. And, and um, you're going to fire this prosecutor general, whether that had anything to do with his son or not, doesn't make a difference. It's, you know, uh, imagine if some foreign country, if their president came to the White House and said, oh, you're going to change up your attorney general tomorrow. Uh, the, the population would be pretty pissed. You know, and um, but we just don't see it that way. We, we we're we're so accustomed to to seeing ourselves um, as kind of rulers by birthright of these other parts of the world uh, that we we stumble into these policies that that and we don't we don't even think about how they appear to other people. And so the Ukrainians and the Russians both, they're, they're like, they're proud people. They, they don't want to be told what to do. And, um, and I, and I think that's, that's what I worry about with this, with this story is, is that it's, it's kind of these like Dr. Strangelove goofballs who are, <laughs> you know, they, 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 they're playing a game when it's, when it's something much more serious than, than a game to, to people. And that, that's what I worry about. Is that, is that, is that, no, that, that totally makes sense. I mean, that's what people say. I mean, the more money you have, the less, you know, you start really caring about <laughs> normal people. And I don't feel like they have any conception of what normal people actually live like or feel like, because like you said, they've grown up in these Ivy Towers. So, Right. Exactly. And, exactly. and, you know, that's the other thing that makes me sad about Zelensky. I've been following him since, I mean, my, my, my dad is from Moscow, so he, he always keeps me up to date on kind of what's going on. And he was very very excited for Zelensky when he was first elected. He thought he was going to be able to bring peace. Uh, oh, Ella. Um, 
Uh, Greg, I lost Hi, you. Well, thanks for the question. Yeah. Did you have hopes for Zelensky at all, or were you not following him very closely? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, And then, and uh, had an ironic view of, um, you know, he, he he wasn't he wasn't the typical slavish suck up to the United States that that we uh, you know of the type that we liked uh, as our leaders uh, in that area, uh, and but he also had a you know a very clear eyed view of what was what Russia was all about, and I so I I did have some hope hopes for him as uh, somebody who would, you know, fight for um, Ukrainian independence. And he's, I, I, I don't fault him for anything that, that that's going on right now. He's fighting as hard as he can to, to preserve his country. I just think that um, uh, it's, it's more the United States. It's, it's more the, the Victoria new ones of the world who I think are pushing him into the, they, they help push, push him into the predicament that he's in. Um, that that that's more my my concern, but anyway, Greg, I'm under a little bit of time pressure. I'm going to take one more call. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, so, thanks so much uh, for, for 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 pitching in and uh, enjoy your lunch, uh, uh, or if you're you just had it. Uh, let's see. I think Joe is next. Hey, Matt, can you hear me? Hey, Joe. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'll uh, try to be quick. I know you got to get to your kids. Um. <laughs> So I wanted to kind of circle back to something you got, we were talking about at the beginning, um, just about the, like the loss of principle. And it strikes me like sometimes I'm scrolling. Sometimes when I get bored, I just read your, uh, your Twitter replies to the people uh, who like react to your articles. Yeah. And, uh, sometimes I think I don't usually interact on Twitter, but when I'm reading other people, sometimes the thing I see people will do who kind of like are, more willing to hand wave the censoriousness that we're seeing is they'll do this thing where they'll go, Oh, but it's a private company. It would be different if it was the federal government as if that like makes it better, you know, like, Oh yeah, it's totally fine. Like I'm so glad Mark Zuckerberg or whatever gets to have all this power. Um, And it strikes me as like, there's gotta be a connection. This is probably the way censorship and, uh, authoritarian always uh, authoritarianism always happens i guess but like at first it always there's always an excuse right there's always a oh well it's not the same because xyz right like sure what do you think that uh do you think that the ability for people to say okay well this is technically different and then pivot to this kind of you know libertarian you know take about the rights of of companies do you think that I just, I think that just enables this slide of of our principles even even more in a way that is potentially even more dangerous, right? Whereas if like the government came out one day and said this is all banned, everyone would realize it's bad. But like to talk about like Orwell, like you know, in Animal Farm, they always like wake up and the laws are different. You know what I mean? Right. But you're kind, of, but it's so slow you don't even notice it, right? Yep. Yep. That's yeah. That's a great. That's a great question, and you're absolutely right. This is something I've I've harped on a lot over the years, which is that you know there's 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 always a couple of elements to every advance in the censorship movement. One, it's always an emergency, right? Like we mm. we we can't. This is different. 
you know, don't don't think of this as a normal situation. This is we're we're under an extraordinary uh, attack. You, th- you know, think about when they when they first kicked uh, Alex Jones off, uh, and then that's that's part number two is they always pick the softest, most um, you know, sort of. Uh, least compelling target, right? The person, the person who has, who has the, um, you know, is considered the most unredeeming, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, but, you know, there, there, oh, it's, it's an emergency. We're under attack by a foreign power. There's, you know, there's foreign interference. We can't allow it. So we, we need to start going in and, 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 um, you know, exercising more control over these accounts. And so that was, that was the, the initial pitch to, uh, after Trump was elected, uh, you know, companies who, who all got dragged in to uh, to Washington to be lectured to about their their lack of control over misinformation, and then it, but it's always that you know then then it was the pandemic. Well, oh, this is killing people, right? That that was Biden's line. Mm-hmm. Misinformation is killing people. We can't allow it. Um, it's it's literally fatal. Uh, you know, and then. then or, or you know, when it was the Canadian trucker protests, oh well, it, we're, it's grinding commerce to a halt. It's, I mean, it's always an emergency. There's never, a, nobody ever censors during a time of calm and peace. Like that's that's not how it works. The, like the, the the First Amendment and free speech principles, you, you have to be committed to them under times of stress. And I, I think what they've done in the last seven years, though. Is they've they've kind of exhausted people's um, resistance to these ideas by right. by steadily chipping away at it. It's like one little thing after another, um, and then every now a big bite like did in this first week after the Ukraine invasion. Um, you know, it, obviously, I think it was a pretty big move to start with Alex Jones. That I mean, because that was a coordinated action by five or six of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, and they took a fairly prominent figure and they just sort of got rid of them. Right. Uh, and then, you know, a- after the invasion for the EU, from everybody from the EU to direct TV, to, to Facebook and Twitter and Google to, to all act uh, at the same time uh, against Russian state television, you know, that, that's one thing. I mean, I, I can understand that, but it was the, it was the next step of going after, uh, you know, Visa and MasterCard users in Russia, Apple and Google Pay in Russia, um, you know, individuals who were connected to Russian state media in some way. Like those, so, so I think that's, yeah. that's the, the ebb and flow of this whole thing is like they'll, They'll nibble here and there for for years at the you know the Brett Weinstein's of the world, right? Um, or, mm-hmm. but but then but then there'll be an event and the, and they'll 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 be a big event, and um, and that's that's what I worry. Does that make sense? Because I, I I worry. Yeah, about- it does. If I if I have one thought before you, you got to go. I think sometimes I think it's hard to determine like the causality. Like, is it that you know? these these easy these low-hanging fruit like alex jones are a function to 
softens pe- soften soften people's like the general public's like connection to the principle of free speech itself, or is it that you know there's a general do you, like do you know do you think it's calculated? Do you, like, yeah. I mean, I I I do on some level. I mean, I, the, there had to have been discussions, um, right. you know, between all of these executives, and I and. They did, because of what the higher up people, what the elites or whatever you want to call them, the cabal would tell you is that, oh, everyone, you know, it's good that our society is achieving this level of moral righteousness, you know, so we're able to snuff things out and we're not stopped by, you know, the old fashioned way of seeing the world, right? So they'll say that it's that like that, like everyone wants Alex Jones to get off, so we're doing you a favor. And as as opposed to them actually priming you to kind of forget that that used to not be okay, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, but but cer- but certainly they pick Alex Jones because first. it's a it's a step. Yeah. It's an easy step. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who, who's going to defend Alex Jones in, the, in this in the same way? Like, look, it's a it's a big deal to take to, for for the EU to um to to outright ban. Uh, Russian state media, uh, you know that that's a huge step you know, in terms of in kind of the history of Western censorship. Like, obviously, that's their tradition is a little different than ours. They outlaw hate speech and everything. Um, but who's gonna who's gonna stand up this week and and say you know I I need to defend RT or Sputnik? Nobody, right? <laughs> but, right. Well, that, well, because though, what about you? which is the right. only thing that I thought you put in your article, which is like, people will, what about you right back? You know, like, right. <laughs> so that you'll be like, Oh, well, what's free speech. And they're like, well, what about Ukraine? Do you hate all the people in Ukraine that are dying? It's like, okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, this, 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 this is, um, it's, yeah, it's always, it's always an emergency. It's always somebody like, you know, un- unredeeming and, um, I think there's a pattern to it and they've been, you know, all these companies have been very, very committed, you know, ever since uh, Trump got elected when I think the, it was genu- probably genuinely true that most of them didn't want to get involved um, in policing content. Uh, th- that wasn't what they were. I mean, you heard Mark Zuckerberg saying like, I, you know, we're not in the news business. We're mm-hmm. not right. Uh, now they all are. And, um, and they're all clearly acting in concert, you know, they do things like with like Apple and Amazon ganging up on parlor, like, you know, that this is, this is serious business. We just don't know a whole, we don't know the whole story though. Like, you know, how much of this is being done at the direction of, or with, with participation of government entities. Like, I I just wish we knew more of the story about how it's all happening. And so it would be great if there was a lawsuit about some of this stuff that they could get some discovery on that. But yeah, uh, imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Joe, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you to everybody who came out. Um, A a lot of people uh, came out today. This is cool. And um, and thanks to everybody who read the article as well. And uh, I'll talk to you again uh, real soon. Uh, so take care.